You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 5 Mr. Peters decides on a strange step and arrests the dead. While Mr. Peters, assisted by Richard's sincere friend, the young surgeon, made the visit above described, Daredevil Dick counted the hours in London. It was essential to the success of his cause, Gus and Peters urged, that he should not show himself or in any way reveal the fact of his existence till the real murderer was arrested. Let the truth appear to all the world, and then time enough for Richard to come forth with an unbranded forehead in the sight of his fellow men. But when he heard that Raymond Marole had given his pursuers the slip, it was all that his mother, his friend Percy Cordoner, Isabella Darley, and the lawyers, to whom he had entrusted his cause, could do to prevent his starting that instant on the track of the guilty man. It was a weary day, this day of the failure of the arrest, for all. Neither his mother's tender consolation nor his solicitor's assurances that all was not yet lost could moderate the young man's impatience. Neither Isabella's tearful prayers that he would leave the issue in the hands of heaven, nor Mr. Cordoner's philosophical recommendation to take it quietly and let the beggar go could keep him quiet. He felt like a caged lion, whose ignoble bonds kept him from the vile object of his rage. The day wore out, however, and no tidings came of the fugitive. Mr. Cordoner insisted on stopping with his friend till three o'clock in the morning, and at that very late hour set out with the intention of going down to the Cherokees. It was a cheerful night, and they would most likely be still assembled to ascertain, as he popularly expressed it, whether anything had turned up there. The clock of St. Martin's struck three as he stood with Richard at the street door in Spring Gardens, giving friendly consolation between the puffs of his cigar to the agitated young man. "'In the first place, my dear boy,' he said, "'if you can't catch the fellow, you can't catch the fellow. That's sound logic and a mathematical argument. Then why make yourself unhappy about it? Why try to square the circle?' "'only because the circle's round and can't be squared? "'Let it alone. "'If this fellow turns up, hang him. "'I should glory in seeing him hung, "'for he's an out-and-out -out scoundrel, "'and I should make a point of witnessing the performance. "'If the officials would do the thing at a reasonable hour "'and not execute him in the middle of the night "'and swindle the respectable public. "'If he doesn't turn up, why, let the matter rest. "'Marry that little girl in there, Darley's pretty sister,' who seems, by the by, to be absurdly fond of you, and let the question rest. That's my philosophy. The young man turned away with an impatient sigh. Then, laying his hand on Percy's shoulder, he said, My dear old fellow, if everybody in the world were like you, Napoleon would have died a Corsican lawyer or a lieutenant in the French army. 
Robespierre would have lived a petty barrister with a penchant for getting up in the night to eat jam tarts and a mania for writing bad poetry. The third state would have gone home quietly to its farmyards and merchants' offices. There would have been no oath of the tennis court and no battle of Waterloo. And a very good thing, too, said his philosophical friend. Nobody would have been a loser but Astley's. Only think of that. If there had been no Napoleon, what a loss for image boys. Forgive me, Dick, for laughing at you. I'll cut down to the cheerfuls and see if anything's up. The smasher's away, or he might have given us his advice. The genius of the PR might have been of some service in this affair. Good night. He gave Richard a languidly affectionate shake of the hand and departed. Now, when Mr. Cordoner said he would cut down to the Cherokees, let it not be thought by the simple-minded reader that the expression cut down from his lips conveyed that degree of velocity which, though perhaps a sufficiently vague phrase in itself, it is calculated to carry to the ordinary mind. Percy Cordoner had never been seen by a mortal man in a hurry. He had been known to be too late for a train, and had been beheld placidly lounging at a few paces from the departing engine, and mildly, but rather reproachfully, regarding that object. The prospects of his entire life may have hinged on this, going by that particular train, but he would never be so false to his principles as to make himself unpleasantly warm, or in any way disturb the delicate organization with which nature had gifted him. He had been seen at the doors of the opera house when Jenny Lind was going to appear, and while those around him were afflicted with a temporary lunacy and trampling one another wildly in the mud, he had been observed leaning against a couple of fat men as in an easy chair and standing high and dry upon somebody else's boots, breathing gentlemanly and polyglot execrations upon the surrounding crowd, when in swaying to and fro it disturbed or attempted to disturb his serenity. So when he said he would cut down to the Cherokees, he of course meant that he would cut after his manner, and he accordingly rolled languidly along the deserted pavements of the Strand, with something of the purposeless manner that Rasselas may have had in a walk through the arcades of his happy valley. He reached the well-known tavern at last, however, and stopping under the sign of the washed-out Indian, desperately tomahawking nothing in the direction of Covent Garden, with an arm more distinguished for muscular development than correct drawing, he gave the well-known signal of the club and was admitted by the damsel before described, who appeared always to devote the watches of the night to the process of putting her hair in papers, that she might wear that becoming head for the admiration of the jug-and-bottle customers of the following day, and shine in a frame of very long and very greasy curls that were apt to sweep the heads off brown stouts and dip gently into goes of spirits upon the more brilliant company of the evening. This young lady, popularly known as Liza, was well up in the sporting business of the house, read the life during church time on Sundays, and was even believed to have communicated with that radamanthine journal under the signature of L in the answers to correspondence. She was understood to be engaged, or as her friends and admirers expressed it, to be keeping company with that luminary of the PR, the Middlesex Mauler, whose headquarters were at the Cherokee. Mr. Cordoner found three cheerfuls assembled in the bar in a state of intense excitement and soda water. 
a telegraphic message had just arrived from the smasher. It was worthy, in economy of construction, of the Delphic oracle, and had the advantage of being easy to understand. It was as follows. Tell R.M. he's here. Had no orders, so went in with left. He won't be able to move for a day or two. Mr. Cordoner was almost surprised, and was thus very nearly false, for once in his life, to the only art he knew. "'This will be good news in Spring Gardens,' he said. "'But Peters won't be back till tomorrow night. "'Suppose,' he added, musing, "'we were to telegraph to him at Slopperton, instantly. "'If anybody can find a cab and take the message, "'it would be doing Marwood in an estimable service,' "'added Mr. Cordoner, passing through the bar "'and lazily seating himself.' "'on a green and gold cream-of-the-valley cask, "'with his hat very much on the back of his head "'and his hands in his pockets. "'I'll write the message,' he scribbled upon a card. "'Go across to Liverpool. "'He's given us the slip and is there,' "'and handed it politely towards the three cheerfuls "'who were leaning over the pewter counter. "'Splitters, the dramatic author, "'clutched the document eagerly.' To his poetic mind, it suggested that best gift of inspiration, a situation. "'I'll take it,' he said. "'What a fine line it would make in a bill. "'The intercepted telegram with a comic railway clerk "'and the villain of the piece cutting the wires.' "'Away with you, splitters,' said Percy Cordoner. "'Don't let the strand become verdant beneath your airy tread. "'Don't stop to compose a five-act drama as you go. "'That's a good fellow.' "'Liza, my dear girl, a pint of your creamiest Edinburgh, "'and let it be as mild as the disposition of your humble servant.' Three days after the above conversation, three gentlemen were assembled at breakfast in a small room in a tavern overlooking the quay at Liverpool. This triangular party consisted of the smasher in an elegant and simple morning costume, consisting of tight trousers of Stuart plaid, an orange-colored necktie, a blue-checked waistcoat, and shirt-sleeves. The smasher looked upon a coat as an essentially outdoor garment, and would no more have invested himself in it to eat his breakfast than he would have partaken of that refreshment with his hat on or an umbrella up. The two other gentlemen were Mr. Darley and his chief, Mr. Peters, who had a little document in his pocket signed by a Lancashire magistrate on which he set considerable value they had come across to Liverpool as directed by the telegraph, and had there met with the smasher, who had received letters for them from London with the details of the escape and orders to be on the lookout for Peters and Gus. Since the arrival of these two, the trio had led a sufficiently idle and apparently purposeless life. They had engaged an apartment overlooking the quay, in the window of which they were seated for the best part of the day, playing the intellectual and exciting game of all fours. There did not seem much in this to forward the cause of Richard Marwood. It is true that Mr. Peters was wont to vanish from the room every now and then in order to speak to mysterious and brave-looking gentlemen who commanded respect wherever they went and before whom the most daring thief in Liverpool shrank as before Mr. Calcraft himself. He held strange conferences with them in corners of the hostelry in which the trio had taken up their abode "'He went out with them and hovered above the quays and the shipping. "'He prowled about in the dusk of the evening, "'and meeting these gentlemen also prowling in the uncertain light, 
he would sometimes salute them as friends and brothers, at other times be entirely unacquainted with them, and now and then interchange two or three hurried gestures with them, which the close observer would have perceived to mean a great deal. Beyond this, nothing had been done, and in spite of all this, no tidings could be obtained of the Count de Marolle, except that no person answering to his description had left Liverpool either by land or water. Still, neither Mr. Peter's spirits nor patience failed him, and after every interview held upon the stairs or in the passage, and after every excursion to the quays or the streets, he returned as briskly as on the first day, and reseated himself at the little table by the window, at which his colleagues, or rather his companions, for neither Mr. Darley nor the smasher were of the smallest use to him, played, and took it in turns to ruin each other from morning till night. The real truth of the matter was that, if anything, the detective's so-called assistants were decidedly in his way. But Augustus Darley, having distinguished himself in the escape from the asylum, considered himself an amateur vidoc, and the smasher, from the moment of putting in his left and unconsciously advancing the cause of Richard and justice by extinguishing the Count de Marolle, had panted to write his name, or rather make his mark, upon the scroll of fame, by arresting that gentleman in his own proper person, and without any extraneous aid whatever. It was rather hard for him, then, to have to resign the prospect of such a glorious adventure to a man of Mr. Peter's inches. But he was of a calm and amiable disposition, and would floor his adversary with as much good temper as he would eat his favorite dinner. So, with a growl of resignation, he abandoned the reins to the steady hands so used to hold them, and seated himself down to the consumption of innumerable clay pipes and glasses of bitter ale with Gus, who, being one of the most ancient of the order of the Cherokees, was a special favorite with him. On this third morning, however, there is a decided tone of weariness pervading the minds of both Gus and the smasher. Three-handed all fours, though a delicious and exciting game, will pall upon the inconstant mind, especially when your third player is perpetually summoned from the table to take part in a mysterious dialogue with a person or persons unknown, the result of which he declines to communicate to you. The view from the bow window of the blue parlor in the white line Liverpool is no doubt as animated as it is beautiful, but Rasselas, as we know, got tired of some very pretty scenery, and there have been readers so inconstant as to grow weary of Dr. Johnson's book and to go down peacefully to their graves unacquainted with the climax thereof. So it is scarcely perhaps to be wondered that the volatile Augustus thirsted for the waterworks of Blackfriars, while the smasher, feeling himself to be blushing unseen and wasting his stamina, if not his sweetness, on the desert air, pined for the familiar shades of Bow Street and Vinegar Yard, and the home sounds of the rumbling and jingling of the wagons, and the unplight language of the drivers thereof on market mornings in the adjacent market. Pleasures and palaces are all very well in their way, as the song says, but there is just one little spot on earth which, whether it be a garret in Petticoat Lane or a mansion in Belgrave Square, is apt to be dearer to us than the best of them. And the smasher languishes for the friendly touch of the ebony handles of the porter engine 
and the scent of the Welsh rarebits of his youth. Perhaps I express myself in a more romantic manner on this subject, however, than I should do, for the remark of the left-handed one, as he pours himself out a cup of tea from the top of the teapot, he despises the spout of that vessel as a modern innovation on ancient simplicity, is as simple as it is energetic. He merely observes that he is jolly sick of this lot, this lot meaning Liverpool, the Count de Marole, the White Lion, three-handed all-fours, and the detective police force. "'There was nobody ill in Friar Street when I left,' said Gus mournfully. "'But there had been a run upon Pimpernickel's universal regenerator pills. "'And if that don't make a business a little brisker, nothing will.' "'It's my opinion,' observed the smasher doggedly, "'that this air foreign cove has given us the slip out and out, "'and the sooner we get back to London the better. "'I never was much of a hand at chasing wild geese, and—' "'he added, with rather a spiteful glance "'at the mild countenance of the detective. "'I don't see neither that standing "'and making signs to parties "'unbeknownst at street corners, "'and stairheads is the quickest way "'to catch them sort of birds. "'Leastways, it's not the opinion "'held by the gents belonging to the ring, "'as I've had the honour to make acquaintance with.' "'Suppose,' said Mr. Peters on his fingers, Oh, muttered the smasher, blow them fingers of his. I can't understand him there. The left-handed Hercules knew that this was to attack the detective on his tenderest point. Blessed I, if I ever knows his P's from his B's, or his W's from his X's, let alone his vowels, and them would puzzle a conjurer. Mr. Peters glanced at the prize fighter more in sorrow than in anger, and taking out a greasy little pocketbook, and a greasier little pencil, considerably the worse for having been vehemently chewed in moments of preoccupation, he wrote upon a leaf of it thus. Suppose we catch him today. Ah, very true, said the smasher sulkily, after he'd examined the document in two or three different lights before he came upon its full bearings. Very true indeed, suppose we do, and suppose we don't, on the other hand. "'and I know which is the likeliest. "'Suppose, Mr. Peters, we give up looking for a needle in a bundle of hay, "'which after a time gets trying to a lively disposition, "'and go back to our business. "'If you had a girl as didn't know British "'from best French, a servant of your customers,' "'he continued in an injured tone, "'you'd be anxious to get home "'and let your foreign counts go to the devil their own ways. "'Then go,' "'Mr. Peters wrote, in large letters and no capitals. "'Oh, ah, yes, to be sure,' replied the smasher, "'who, I regret to say, felt painfully, "'in his absence from domestic pleasures, "'the want of somebody to quarrel with. "'No, I thank you. "'Go the very day as you're going to catch him. "'Not if I'm in any manner aware of the circumstance. "'I'm obliged to you,' he added, with satirical emphasis. "'Come, I say, old boy,' interposed Gus, "'who had been quietly doing execution "'upon a plate of deviled kidneys "'during this little friendly altercation. "'Come, I say, no snarling, Smasher. "'Peters isn't going to contest the belt with you, you know.' "'You needn't be a-digging at me because I ain't champion,' "'said the ornament of the PR, "'who was inclined to find a malicious meaning "'in every word uttered that morning. "'You needn't come any of your sneers "'because I ain't got the belt any longer.' The smasher had been champion of England in his youth, 
but had retired upon his laurels for many years, and only occasionally emerged from private life in a public house to take a round or two with some old opponent. "'I tell you what it is, Smasher. It's my opinion the air of Liverpool don't suit your constitution,' said Gus. "'We've promised to stand by Peters here, and to go by his word in everything, for the sake of the man we want to serve.' "'and however trying it may be to our patients doing nothing, "'which perhaps is about as much as we can do, "'and make no mistakes, "'the first that gets tired and deserts the ship "'will be no friend to Richard Marwood. "'I'm a bad lot, Mr. Darley, and that's the truth,' "'said the mollified smasher. "'But the fact is, I'm used to a turn with the gloves "'every morning before breakfast with the barman, "'and when I don't get it, "'I dare say I ain't the pleasantest company going. "'I should think they've got gloves in the house. "'Would you mind taking off your coat "'and having a turn, friendly-like?' "'Gus assured the smasher "'that nothing would please him better "'than that trifling diversion. "'And in five minutes "'they'd pushed Mr. Peters "'and the breakfast table into a corner "'and were hard at it, "'Mr. Darley's knowledge of the art "'being all required to keep the slightest pace.' with the scientific movements of the agile, though elderly, smasher. Mr. Peters did not stay at the breakfast table long, but after having drunk a huge breakfast cupful of very opaque and substantial-looking coffee at a draft, just as if it had been a half pint of beer, he slid quietly out of the room. "'It's my opinion,' said the smasher, as he stood, or rather lounged, upon his guard, and warded off the most elaborate combinations of Mr. Darley's fists with as much ease as he would have brushed aside so many flies. It's my opinion that chap ain't up to his business. Isn't he, replied Gus, as he threw down the gloves in despair, after having been half an hour in a violent perspiration, without having succeeded in so much as rumpling the smasher's hair. Isn't he? he said, choosing the interrogative as the most expressive form of speech. That man's got head enough to be prime minister and carry the house along with every twist of his fingers. He must make his B's and P's a little plainer before he'll get a bill through the commons, though, muttered the left-handed one, who couldn't quite get over his feelings of injury against the detective for the utter darkness in which he had been kept for the last three days as to the other's plan. The smasher and Mr. Darley passed the morning in that remarkably intellectual and praiseworthy manner, peculiar to gentlemen who, being thrown out of their usual occupation, are cast upon their own resources for amusement and employment. There was the daily paper to be looked at, to begin with. But after Gus had glanced at the leading article, a reprint of the Times leader of the day before, garnished with some local allusions, and highly spiced with satirical remarks apropos to our spirited contemporary, the Liverpool paper. After the smasher had looked at the racing fixtures for the coming week and made rude observations on the editing of a journal which failed to describe the coming off of the event between Silverpold Robert and the Chester Crusher, after, I say, the two gentlemen had each devoured his favorite page, the paper was an utter failure in the matter of excitement, and the window was the next best thing. Now, to the peculiarly constituted mind of the left-handed one, looking out of a window was in itself very slow work, and unless he was allowed to eject missiles of a trifling but annoying character, such as hot ashes out of his pipe, 
the last drop of his pint of beer, the dirty water out of the saucers belonging to the flower pots on the window sill, or lighted lucifer matches into the eyes of the unoffending passers-by, he didn't, to use his own forcible remark, seem to see the fun of it. Harmless old gentlemen with umbrellas, mildly elderly ladies with hand-baskets and brass-handled green-silk parasols, and young ladies of from ten to twelve going to school in clean frocks, and on particularly good terms with themselves, the smasher looked upon as his peculiar prey. To put his head out of the window and make tender and polite inquiries about their maternal parents, to go further still and express an earnest wish to be informed of those parents' domestic arrangements, and whether they had been induced to part with a piece of machinery of some importance in the getting up of linen, to insinuate alarming suggestions of mad bulls in the next street, or a tiger just broke loose from the zoological gardens, to terrify the youthful scholar by asking him derisively whether he wouldn't catch it when he got to school. Oh, no, not at all, neither. And to draw his head away suddenly and altogether disappear from public view. To act, in fact, after the manner of an accomplished clown in a Christmas pantomime was the weak delight of his manly mind. And when prevented by Mr. Darley's friendly remonstrance from doing this, the smasher abandoned the window altogether and concentrated all the powers of his intellect on the pursuit of a lively young bluebottle, which eluded his bandana at every turn, and bumped itself violently against the window panes at the very moment its pursuer was looking for it up the chimney. Time and the hour made very long work of this particular morning, and several glasses of bitter had been called for, and numerous games of cribbage had been played by the two companions, when Mr. Darley, looking at his watch for not more than the twenty-second time in the last hour, announced with some satisfaction that it was half-past two o'clock, and that it was consequently very near dinner-time. "'Peters is a long time gone,' suggested the smasher. "'Take my word for it,' said Gus. "'Something has turned up. "'He has laid his hand upon de Marole at last.' "'I don't think it,' replied his ally, "'obstinately refusing to believe in Mr. Peters' "'extra share of the divine afflatus. "'And if he did come across him, "'how's he to detain him, I'd like to know. "'He couldn't go in with his left,' "'he muttered derisively, "'and split his head open upon the pavement "'to keep him quiet for a day or two. At this very moment there came a tap at the door, and a youthful person in corduroy and a perspiration entered the room, with a very small and very dirty piece of paper twisted up into a bad imitation of a three-cornered note. "'Please, you was to give me sixpence if I run all the way,' remarked the youthful Mercury, "'and I have. Look at my forehead.' And in proof of his fidelity— the messenger pointed to the water-drops which chased each other down his open brow and ran a dead heat to the end of his nose. The scrawl ran thus. The Washington sails at three for New York. Be on the quay and see the passengers embark. Don't notice me unless I notice you. Yours truly. It was just give me by a gent in a hurry who was dumb and wrote upon a piece of paper to tell me to run my legs off so as you should have it quick. Thank you kindly, sir, and good afternoon, said the messenger, all in one breath as he bowed his gratitude for the shilling Gus tossed him as he dismissed him. 
"'I said so,' cried the young surgeon, "'as the smasher applied himself to the note "'with quite as much, nay, perhaps more earnestness and solemnity "'than Chevalier Bunsen might have assumed "'when he deciphered a half-erased and illegible inscription "'in a language which for some two thousand years "'has been unknown to mortal man. "'I said so. Peters is on the scent, "'and this man will be taken yet. "'Put on your hat, smasher, and let's lose no time.' It only wants a quarter to three, and I wouldn't be out of this for a great deal. I shouldn't much relish being out of the fun either, replied his companion, and if it comes to blows, perhaps it's just as well I haven't had my dinner. There were a good many people going by the Washington, and the deck of the small steamer which was to convey them aboard the great ship, where she lay in graceful majesty down the noble Mercy River, was crowded with every species of luggage it was possible to imagine as appertaining to the widest varieties of the genus traveller. There was the maiden lady, with a small income from the three percents, and a determination of blood to the tip of a sharp nose, going out to join a married brother in New York, and evidently intent upon importing a gigantic brass cage containing a parrot in the last stage of bald-headedness, politely called molting, and a limp and wandering-minded umbrella, weak in the ribs, and further afflicted, with a painfully sharp tip, which always appeared where it was not expected, and evidently hankered wildly after the bystander's backbones, as favorable specimens of the progress of the fine arts in the mother country. There were several of these brilliant birds of passage, popularly known as travelers, whose heavy luggage consisted of a carpet-bag and walking-stick, and whose light ditto was composed of a pocket-book and a silver pencil-case of protean construction, which was sometimes a pen, now and then a pen-knife, and very often a toothpick. These gentlemen came down to the steamer at the last moment, inspiring the minds of nervous passengers with supernatural and convulsive cheerfulness by the light and airy way in which they bade adieu to the comrades who had just looked round to see them start, and who made appointments with them for Christmas supper parties, and booked bets with them for next year's new market first spring, as if such things as shipwreck, peril by sea, healing over Royal Georges, lost presidents, with brilliant Irish comedians, setting forth on their return to the land in which they had been so beloved and admired, never, never to reach the shore, were things that could not be. There were rosy-cheeked country lasses, going over to earn fabulous wages, "'and marry impossibly rich husbands. "'There were the old people, who essayed this long journey "'on an element which they knew only by sight, "'in answer to the kind son's noble letter, "'inviting them to come and share the pleasant home "'his sturdy arm had won far away in the fertile west. "'There were stout Irish laborers, "'armed with pickaxe and spade, "'as with the best sword wherewith to open "'the great oyster of the world "'in these latter degenerate days.' There was the distinguished American family, with ever so many handsomely dressed, spoiled, affectionate children, clustering round Papa and Mama, and having their own way, after the manner of transatlantic youth. There were, in short, all the people who usually assemble when a good ship sets sail for the land of dear brother Jonathan. But the Count de Marole there was not. No, decidedly, no Count de Marole. There is a very quiet-looking Irish laborer, Q, 
keeping quite aloof from the rest of his kind, who were sufficiently noisy and more than sufficiently forcible in the idiomatic portions of their conversation. There was this very quiet Irishman, leaning on his spade and pickaxe, and evidently bent on not going on board till the very last moment. And there was an elderly gentleman in a black coat who looked rather like a Methodist parson and who held a very small carpet-bag in his hand. But there was no Count de Marolle, and what's more, there was no Mr. Peters. This latter circumstance made Augustus Darley very uneasy, but I regret to say that the smasher wore, if anything, a look of triumph as the hands of the clocks about the key pointed to three o'clock, and no Peters appeared. "'I knowed,' he said with effusion. "'I knowed that cove wasn't up to his business. "'I wouldn't mind betting the goodwill of my little crib in London, "'against sixpenny worth of coppers, "'that he's a-standing at this very individual moment of time "'at a street corner, a mile off, "'making signs to one of the Liverpool police officers.' The gentleman in the black coat standing before them turned round on hearing this remark and smiled, smiled very, very faintly, but he certainly did smile. The smasher's blood, which was something like that of Lancaster and distinguished for its tendency to mount, was up in a moment. "'I hope you find my conversation amusing, old gent,' he said, with considerable asperity. "'I came down here on purpose to put you in spirits,' "'on account of being grieved to see you always a-looking "'as if you'd just come home from your own funeral "'and the undertaker was a-doing you for the burial fees.' "'Gus trod heavily on his companion's foot "'as a friendly hint to him not to get up a demonstration, "'and addressing the gentleman who appeared in no hurry "'to resent the smasher's contemptuous animadversions, "'asked him when he thought the boat would start. "'Not for five or ten minutes, I dare say,' he answered, "'Look here, is that a coffin they're bringing this way? "'I'm rather short-sighted. "'Be good enough to tell me, is it a coffin?' "'The smasher, who had the glance of an eagle, "'replied that it decidedly was a coffin, "'adding with a growl that he knowed somebody "'who might be in it, and no harm done to society. "'The elderly gentleman took not the slightest notice "'of this gratuitous piece of information "'on the part of the left-handed gladiator,' but suddenly busied himself with his fingers in the neighborhood of his limp white cravat. "'Why, I'm blessed,' cried the smasher, "'if the old baby ain't at Peter's games, "'a-talkin' to nobody upon his fingers.' "'Nay, most distinguished professor of the noble art of self-defense, "'is not that assertion a little premature? "'Talking on his fingers, certainly, "'looking at nobody, certainly, "'but for all that, talking to somebody,' and to a somebody who was looking at him. For, from the other side of the little crowd, the Irish laborer fixes his eyes intently on every movement of the grave, elderly gentleman's fingers as they run through four or five rapid words. And Gus Darley, perceiving this look, starts in amazement, for the eyes of the Irish laborer are the eyes of Mr. Peters of the detective police. But neither the smasher nor Gus is to notice Mr. Peters unless Mr. Peters notices them. It is so expressed in the note, which Mr. Darley has at that very moment in his pocket. So Gus gives his companion a nudge, directs his attention to the smock frock and the slouched hat in which the detective has hidden himself, with a hurried injunction to him to keep quiet. We are human at the best. Aye, even when we are celebrated for our genius in the muscular science— 
and our well-known blow of the left-handed postman's knock, or double auctioneer. And if the sober truth must be told, the smasher was sorry to recognize Mr. Peters in that borrowed garb. He didn't want the dumb detective to arrest the Count de Marolle. He had never read Coriolanus. Neither had he seen the Roman, Mr. William McCready, in that character. But for all that, the smasher wanted to go home to Drury Lane and say to his astonished admirers, Alone I did it. And lo, here were Mr. Peters and the elderly stranger both entered for the same event. While gloomy and vengeful thoughts, therefore, troubled the manly breast of the vinegar-yard gladiator, four men approached, bearing on their shoulders the coffin which had so aroused the stranger's attention. They bore it on board the steamer, and a few moments after a gentlemanly and cheerful-looking man of about forty stepped across the narrow platform and occupied himself with a crowd of packages which stood in a heap apart from the rest of the luggage on the crowded deck. Again, the elderly stranger's fingers were busy in the region of his cravat. The superficial observer would have merely thought him very fidgety about the limp bit of muslin, but this time the fingers of Mr. Peters telegraphed an answer. "'Gentlemen,' said the stranger, addressing Mr. Darley and the smasher in the most matter-of-fact manner, "'you will be good enough to go on board that steamer with me. "'I am working with Mr. Peters in this affair.' "'Remember, I am going to America by that vessel yonder, "'and you are my friends. "'Come with me to see me off. "'Now, gentlemen.' "'He has no time to say any more, for the bell rings. "'And the last stragglers, "'the people who will enjoy the latest available moment on terra firma, "'scramble on board, amongst them the smasher, "'Gus, and the stranger, who stick very closely together.' The coffin has been placed in the center of the vessel on the top of a pile of chests, and its gloomy black outline is sharply defined against the clear blue autumn sky. Now, there is a general feeling amongst the passengers that the presence of this coffin is a peculiar injury to them. It is unpleasant, certainly. From the very moment of its appearance amongst them, a change has come over the spirits of every one of the travelers. They try to keep away from it, but they try in vain. There is a dismal fascination in the defined and ghastly shape, which all the rough wrappers that can be thrown over it will not conceal. They find their eyes wandering to it, in preference even to watching receding Liverpool, whose steeples and tall chimneys are dipping down and down into the blue water, and will soon disappear altogether. They are interested in it in spite of themselves. They ask questions of one another. They ask questions of the engineer and of the steward and of the captain of the steamer, but can elicit nothing, except that lying in that coffin so close to them and yet so very, very far away from them, there is an American gentleman of some distinction who, having died suddenly in England, is being carried back to New York to be buried amongst his friends in that city. The aggrieved passengers for the Washington think it very hard upon them that the American gentleman of distinction, they remember that he is a gentleman of distinction, and modify their tone accordingly, could not have been buried in England like a reasonable being. The British dominions were not good enough for him, they supposed. Other passengers, pushing the question still further, ask whether he couldn't have been taken home by some other vessel. "'Nay, whether indeed he ought not to have had a ship all to himself, 
"'instead of harrowing the feelings and preying upon the spirits of first-class passengers. "'They look almost spitefully, as they make these remarks, "'towards the shrouded coffin, "'which, to their great aggravation, "'is not entirely shrouded by the wrappers about it. "'One corner has been left uncovered, "'revealing the stout rough oak, "'for it is only a temporary coffin, "'and the gentleman of distinction "'will be into something better befitting his rank.' "'when he arrives at his destination. "'It is to be observed, and it is observed by many, "'that the cheerful passenger in fashionable mourning, "'and with the last greatcoat "'which the inspiration of Seville Row "'has given to the London world thrown over his arm, "'hovers in a protecting manner about the coffin, "'and evinces a fidelity which, "'but for his perfectly cheerful countenance "'and self-possessed manner, "'would be really touching,' "'towards the late American gentleman of distinction, "'whom he has for his only travelling companion. "'Now, though a great many questions "'had been asked on all sides, "'one question especially, "'namely whether it would not be put in the hold "'as soon as they got on board the Washington, "'the answer to which question was an affirmative "'and gave considerable satisfaction, "'except, indeed, to one moody old gentleman, "'who asked, "'How about getting any little thing one happened to want on the journey out of the hold?' "'And was very properly snubbed for the suggestion, "'and told that passengers had no business to want things out of the hold on the voyage, "'and furthermore insulted by the liveliest of the lively travellers, "'who suggested in an audible aside "'that perhaps the old gentleman had only one clean shirt "'and had put that at the bottom of his travelling chest. "'Now, though I say, so many questions had been asked,' No one had as yet presumed to address the cheerful-looking gentleman conveying the American of distinction home to his friends, though this very gentleman might, after all, be naturally supposed to know more than anybody else about the subject. He was smoking a cigar, and though he kept very close to the coffin, he was about the only person on board who did not look at it, but kept his gaze fixed over the fading town of Liverpool. The smasher, Gus, and Mr. Peters' unknown ally stood very close to this gentleman, while the detective himself leant over the side of the vessel, near to, though a little apart from, the Irish laborers and rosy-cheeked country girls, who, as steerage passengers, very properly herded together and did not attempt to contaminate by their presence the minds or the garments of those superior beings who were to occupy state cabins six feet long by three feet wide, and to have green peas and new milk from the cow all the way out. Presently, the elderly gentleman of rather shabby, genteel, but clerical appearance, who had so briefly introduced himself to Gus and the Smasher, made some remarks about the town of Liverpool to the cheerful friend of the late distinguished American. The cheerful friend took his cigar out of his mouth, smiled, and said, "'Yes, it's a thriving town, a small London, really, "'the metropolis in miniature.' "'You know Liverpool very well?' asked the smasher's companion. "'No, not very well. "'In point of fact, I know very little of England at all. "'My visit has been a brief one.' "'He is evidently an American from this remark, "'though there is very little of Brother Jonathan in his manner. "'Your visit has been a brief one, indeed,' "'and it has had a very melancholy termination, I regret to perceive,' "'said the persevering stranger, 
on whose every word the smasher and Mr. Darley hung respectfully. "'A very melancholy termination,' replied the gentleman, with the sweetest smile. "'My poor friend had hoped to return to the bosom of his family, "'and delight them many an evening round cheerful hearth "'by the recital of his adventures in and impressions of the mother country. "'You cannot imagine,' he continued, speaking very slowly, "'and as he spoke, allowing his eyes to wander from the stranger to the smasher "'and from the smasher to Gus, with a glance which, if anything,' "'had the slightest shade of anxiety in it. "'You cannot imagine the interest "'we on the other side of the Atlantic "'take in everything that occurs in the mother country. "'We may be great over there. "'We may be rich over there. "'We may be universally beloved and respected over there. "'But I doubt, I really, after all, doubt,' "'he said sentimentally, "'whether we are truly happy. "'We sigh for the wings of a dove, "'or to speak practically,' "'for our travelling expenses "'that we may come over here and be at rest. "'And yet I conclude it was the especial wish "'of your late friend to be buried over there,' "'asked the stranger. "'It was his dying wish. "'And the melancholy duty of complying with that wish "'devolved on you,' said the stranger, "'with a degree of curiosity "'and frivolous interest in an affair "'entirely irrelevant to the matter in hand "'which bewildered Gus,' "'and at which the smasher palpably turned up his nose, "'muttering to himself at the same time "'that the swell would have time to get to America "'while they was a-palvering and a-jawing this air humbug. "'Yes, it devolved on me,' replied the cheerful gentleman, "'offering his cigar-case to the three friends, "'who declined the proffered weeds. "'We were connections. "'His mother's half-sister married my second cousin. "'Not very nearly connected, certainly,' "'but extremely attached to each other. "'It will be a melancholy satisfaction to his poor widow "'to see his ashes entombed upon his native shore, "'and the thought of that repays me threefold "'for anything I may suffer.' "'He looked altogether far too airy and charming a creature "'to suffer very much, "'but the stranger bowed gravely, "'and Gus, looking towards the prow of the vessel, "'perceived the earnest eyes of Mr. Peters,' "'attentively fixed on the little group. "'As to the smasher, he was so utterly disgusted "'with the stranger's manner of doing business "'that he abandoned himself to his own thoughts "'and hummed a tune, "'the tune appertaining to what is generally called a comic song, "'being the last passages in the life of a humble "'and unfortunate member of the working classes, "'as related by himself. "'While talking to the cheerful gentleman "'on this very melancholy subject,' The stranger from Liverpool happened to get quite close to the coffin, and with an admirable freedom from prejudice which astonished the other passenger standing near, rested his hand carelessly on the stout oaken lid, just at that corner where the canvas left it exposed. It was a most speaking proof of the almost overstrained feeling of devotion possessed by the cheerful gentleman towards his late friend that this trifling action seemed to disturb him, "'His eyes wandered uneasily towards the stranger's black-gloved hand. "'And at last, when, in absence of mind, "'the stranger actually drew the heavy covering completely over this corner of the coffin, "'his uneasiness reached a climax, "'and drawing the dingy drapery hurriedly back, "'he rearranged it in its old fashion. "'Don't you wish the coffin to be entirely covered?' asked the stranger quietly.' 
"'Yes, no, that is,' said the cheerful gentleman, "'with some embarrassment in his tone. "'That is, I—' "'You see there is something of profanity in a stranger's hand "'approaching the remains of those we love.' "'Suppose, then,' said his interlocutor, "'we take a turn about the deck. "'This neighborhood must be very painful to you.' "'On the contrary,' replied the cheerful gentleman, "'you will think me, I dare say, a very singular person, "'but I prefer remaining by him to the last. "'The coffin will be put in the hold "'as soon as we get on board the Washington. "'Then my duty will have been accomplished, "'and my mind will be at rest. "'You go to New York with us?' he asked. "'I shall have that pleasure,' replied the stranger. "'And your friend, your sporting friend,' asked the gentleman, "'with a glance at the mottled soap complexion of the smasher, "'who was still singing the above-mentioned melody, "'with his arms folded on the rail of the bench on which he was seated, "'and his chin resting moodily on his coat-sleeves. "'No,' replied the stranger. "'My friends, I regret to say, leave me as soon as we get on board.' In a few minutes more they reached the side of the brave ship, which from the Liverpool Quay had looked a white-winged speck, not a bit too big for Queen Mab. But which was, oh, such a leviathan of a vessel when you stood just under her, and had to go up her side by means of a ladder, which ladder seemed to be subject to shivering fits, and struck terror into the nervous lady and the bald-headed parrot. All the passengers except the cheerful gentleman with the coffin and the stranger, with Gus and the smasher and Mr. Peters loitering in the background, seemed bent on getting up each before the other, and considerably increased the confusion by evincing this wish in a candid but not conciliating manner, showing a degree of ill-feeling which was much increased by the passengers that had not got on board, looking daggers at the passengers that had got on board, and seemed settled quite comfortably high and dry upon the stately deck. At last, however, every one but the aforesaid group had ascended the ladder. Some stout sailors were preparing great ropes wherewith to haul up the coffin, and the cheerful gentleman was busily directing them, when the captain of the steamer said to the stranger from Liverpool, as he loitered at the bottom of the ladder, with Mr. Peters at his elbow, "'Now then, sir, if you're for the Washington,' "'Quick's the word. We're off as soon as ever they've got that job over,' pointing to the coffin. The stranger from Liverpool, instead of complying with this very natural request, whispered a few words into the ear of the captain, who looked very grave on hearing them, and then, advancing to the cheerful gentleman, who was very anxious and very uneasy about the manner in which the coffin was to be hauled up the side of the vessel, he laid a heavy hand upon his shoulder and said, I want the lid of that coffin taken off before those men haul it up. Such a change came over the face of the cheerful gentleman as only comes over the face of a man who knows that he is playing a desperate game and knows as surely that he has lost it. My good sir, he said, you're mad. Not for the Queen of England would I see that coffin lid unscrewed. I don't think it will give us so much trouble as that, said the other quietly. I very much doubt it's being screwed down at all. You were greatly alarmed just now, lest the person within should be smothered. You were terribly frightened when I drew the heavy canvas over those incisions in the oak, he added, pointing to the lid in the corner of which two or three cracks were apparent to the close observer. Good heavens, the man is mad, 
cried the gentleman, whose manner had entirely lost its airiness. The man is evidently a maniac. This is too dreadful. Is the sanctity of death to be profaned in this manner? Are we to cross the Atlantic in the company of a madman? You are not to cross the Atlantic at all just yet, said the Liverpool stranger. The man is not mad, I assure you, but he is one of the principal members of the Liverpool detective police force and is empowered to arrest a person who is supposed to be on board this boat. There is only one place in which that person can be concealed. Here is my warrant to arrest Jabez North, alias Raymond Morol, alias the Count de Morol. I know as certainly as that I myself stand here that he lies hidden in that coffin, and I desire that the lid may be removed. If I am mistaken, it can be immediately replaced, and I shall be ready to render you my most fervent apologies for having profaned the repose of the dead. Now, Peters. The dumb detective went to one end of the coffin, while his colleague stood at the other. The Liverpool officer was correct in his supposition. The lid was only secured by two or three long stout nails and gave way in three minutes. The two detectives lifted it off the coffin, and there, hot, flushed, and panting, half suffocated, with desperation in his wicked blue eyes, his teeth locked in furious rage at his utter powerlessness to escape from the grasp of his pursuers, there, run to earth at last, lay the accomplished Raymond, Count de Merol. They put the handcuffs on him before they lifted him out of the coffin, the smasher assisting. Years after, when the smasher grew to be an older and graver man, he used to tell to admiring and awe-stricken customers the story of this arrest. But it is to be observed that his memory on these occasions was wont to play him false, for he admitted to mention either the Liverpool detective or our good friend Mr. Peters as taking any part in the capture, but described the whole affair as conducted by himself alone, with an incalculable number of I says, and so then I thinks, and well, what do I do next, and other phrases of the same description. The Count de Merol, with tumbled hair and a white face and blue lips, sitting handcuffed upon the bench of the steamer between the Liverpool detective and Mr. Peters, steaming back to Liverpool, was a sight not good to look upon. The cheerful gentleman sat with the smasher and Mr. Darley, who had been told to keep an eye upon him, and who, the smasher especially, kept both eyes upon him with a will. Throughout the little voyage, there were no words spoken but these from the Liverpool detective, as he first put the fetters on the white and slender wrists of his prisoner. Monsieur de Merol, he said, you've tried this little game once before. This is the second occasion, I understand, on which you've done a sham die. I'd have you beware of the third time. According to superstitious people, it's generally fatal. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.